Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. I'm going to take a drink of water because <clears throat> my throat is kind of dry. Hmm. All right, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, we began our lessons in chapter 3 of this book that we've been studying in Sunday School, Principles of Conduct, by John Murray. And I want you all to recall that in, in studying this book and the various chapters in it, we're seeking to uh, understand and apply certain scriptural principles, what Murray calls the biblical ethic or rule of life, to a wide variety of issues that we face in our day. So last time we discussed this chapter, uh, we discussed what it means to be fruitful and multiply. We talked about the breadth of scriptural commands impinging upon the issue of how many children we as married, uh, as a ma married couples uh, would signify obedience and what that would look like for every couple. And we, we concluded that it would look different for every couple depending on their circumstances and, and the things impinging upon their lives. We also learned that we should guard ourselves against condemning our brother or sister because they have worked out obedience in a way that looks different from our working, of it, working out of it. But we also warned against allowing self-focus to creep in into our thinking and rather remember that obedience to God's command is for our good. It isn't, it isn't to put a fetter on us, it's for our good. That's what he intends it for. We also covered that God defined marriage and he defined it for us as between one man and one woman monogamously for life. And that's his definition that he gave to us. It's not one that we are free to change uh, according to our whims. And we need not be ashamed of that definition while being willing to graciously point it out when we are challenged to broaden it by our, our culture today. We saw also the ethic that Christians are to marry Christians and that that principle made clear in the New Testament developed out of the principle of marrying within the family of covenant, of the covenant promise, which is exemplified in the Old Testament. And then finally we began discussing, and we got cut off in the middle of this, we began discussing the scriptural fact that marriage is neither universally commanded nor universally forbidden, and that that neither married or the single state is declared superior or inferior to the other, but it's a matter of how God has gifted each one of us. And I want to stress this because the church, churches have a tendency in many places to at least implicitly treat singles as second-class citizens, and that is not in keeping with the biblical ethic we've been discussing. Singles should be included in other Christian activities, not singles activities, not marriage activities, but 
Christian activities. They should be included in them every bit as much as married people should. And we all need to remember that. I've fallen into that trap myself of inviting a few couples over for fellowship and not thinking of singles who would be perfectly appropriate to invite and would be helped and would help us in our fellowship. So we, we need to keep that in mind as married folks. In fact, if any class could be seen as superior, and you might, you could, I could argue that you could make a case for it from the scriptures, but they can't, be, they can't be declared superior. But if they could, it would be singles and not married folks. So for those that are given the gift of singleness, it is wise, or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and in 32 and 34, it's good for them not to marry so they can focus their attention on what he terms the things of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 reads, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 and 34, those are basically saying similar things about about uh, men and about women, about married men or single men and single women. Verse 32 says, but I want you to be without care. So Paul's, Paul's uh, concern here was that the people wouldn't be weighed down unnecessarily. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And then 1 Corinthians 7.34, there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. Now, for those that are not given this gift of singleness, which I estimate to be the majority of us, It is not only good and wise to marry, to seek marriage, but it may be a matter of necessity or command rather than burning, as Paul puts it, with passion or committing sexual sin, as Jesus forbids in the Sermon on the Mount. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9. So this is immediately after verse 8 which says it's good for them to remain even as I am. It's good for them to remain single if they are given that gift. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now that word burn, that, that word translated into English, burn, is a different word than the word translated desire, and it means something different. It means... It means uh, to desire in such a strong way that it is distracting to you in your normal activities of life. Paul doesn't want that. Jesus doesn't want that. God has provided a remedy for that. That remedy is marriage, which is a blessed thing. It's a positive thing. And he's given it to us so that we can control uh, our desire, we can control our desires properly and in a God-honoring way. So some 
can control their desires, not their burning, but their desires. We all control some of our desires every day. We all do that in many other areas. I I do that much to my family's uh, good-natured teasing at times. I do that with dessert, for instance. I won't eat the extra dessert. Oh, Dad, you're on vacation. Have the... Sometimes I do. But usually I don't. I exercise control over that desire. I can. And I'm not burning for, for lusting for that dessert. I can control that. Burning distracts from the other affairs of life. And God's given us marriage as a means of getting relief from it. And not just relief but then the ability to focus on obeying him in the sphere of activity which he has placed us in. So I don't want us to read these verses and others like them and think, well, Paul's saying, look, if you can't be like, if you can't be like I am, you can get married. And it's, you know, if you have to do that, go ahead and do it. That's not what he's saying. That's not the tone he's using. He's saying, if you have the gift of singleness, stay single and glorify God with that. And if you don't have that gift, get married. Enjoy the gift. Enjoy the gift of marriage and glorify God in that state. That's what Paul's saying. It's not a compromise. So the bottom line is marriage is neither commanded of mankind nor declared as a superior state or an inferior state. The man or woman who is married focuses on obeying God's commands as well. It's simply directed toward the needs, not not exclusively, but maybe primarily and certainly high on the list, it's His obedience to God is aimed at pleasing his spouse, who, if he has followed the Christian ethic, is another child of God. And that's what God wants him to do, and God is glorified by he or she doing that. So I don't want want those here who are gifted with singleness to look down their noses at those of us who are married. And I don't want those of us who are married to look down our noses at those who are single. I want us all to treat one another as brothers and sisters because it's really just a matter of, of, of giftedness, of which gift you've been given and recognizing that and taking advantage of it. It's something like, and this is a really limited and maybe slightly lame analogy, but it's something like, if all of life were just about manufacturing widgets, all we did was manufacture widgets. Don't ask me what a widget is because it's a, it's a word that means manufactured something. And people were born with either the ability to work together to construct the widgets or the ability to, to paint and decorate the widgets to make them beautiful and suitable for use that way. Now a a constructed widget that is not painted and decorated well 
would be ugly and therefore would not be used. And a beautifully painted widget that was poorly or not constructed at all would be useless. So they'd both be useless. One because it wasn't beautiful and the other because it wasn't put together. Both types of people in this imaginary world where you only make widgets, both types of people are equally needed. You have to have people who are gifted both ways. And in fact, they need each other to to fulfill their life purpose of making widgets. So it is with us. Single people are gifted in one way. Married people are gifted in another way. And we're both necessary, and we need each other. It isn't about being born with the better gift, but about recognizing what gift you have and using it to your utmost to glorify God. So in other words, to paraphrase Paul, if you are single, use your singleness to the glory of God and the building of his kingdom. And if you are married, use your marriage to glorify God and, building of his, and, and for the building of his kingdom. Both can be validly and faithfully accomplished. And both can be failed at. That's true. So seek to understand what God has gifted you to be, to do, and do it with all your might. And don't look to the right or the left and say, oh, I need to be like that person because God didn't make you like that person. God made you the way he made you. All right. That's the close of that section on singleness. All right, so let's, let's move on now and talk about the biblical ethic for pursuit of what Murray calls the sex impulse. You could think of it as sex drive. I might use those terms inter- interchangeably to some extent. What does the Bible teach? What does it contain? What instruction does it contain to regulate the proper pursuit, the proper satisfaction of the sex drive that we've all been given? Some greater, some lesser. So let's first define, let's spend a moment better defining what we mean when we refer to the sex impulse. And I'll ask a question, and you're free to answer. I think it's a relatively easy answer, but it may not be. Is this impulse, the sex impulse, is it a natural, what I'll call a survival appetite, like the ones we have for food and water? What? No. No. I agree with that. Why? How can you say that? That's true. You're not going to die if you know that's it. I can go I can go Well, your race is going to die. Yes. That's true. He was indeed. But that's not well that doesn't justify uh, a wanton pursuit of fulfilling that impulse. I can live for three days without drinking, maybe, maybe four, I don't know. I've never tried, I'm not, I don't intend to, and also I don't intend to try living for 
I put in here 40 days without eating. I think a, a human being can live longer than 40 days without eating, but they can't live indefinitely. We have to eat. It's a must. Can I continue to live... When I say indefinitely, what I mean is the rest of my life, my natural life, can I live and never satisfy my desire for intimacy through sexual connection? Yes. Yeah. Of course, that's exactly right. Can you think of people that we know of in our Bibles or in history that lived that way? All their lives. Jesus. Jesus. That's a good one. <laughs> Jesus lived his entire life on earth without satisfaction of that impulse. So did Paul, apparently. And there are many others throughout history. Now here's the point, though. The culture around us, including much of the so-called Christian culture tells us very pragmatically, if not implicitly, that the desire for sex is natural. It's a natural thing. It's healthy to pursue satisfaction of it. Put another way, and maybe more precisely, repression of that pursuit of satisfaction is unhealthy and even damaging to the psyche. That's what our culture says. One pastor I read recently in a large church said in a sermon that while he supported the biblical teaching on marriage and pursuit of sex within marriage, so that so far so good. He supported that. He went on to say that some same-sex attracted people find that ethic, that rule, that scriptural principle to be, quote-unquote, unsustainable and that we should accept them in our churches. Now, that word unsustainable communicates that philosophy. It says sex is an appetite and it has to be filled. You'll die without it. And these poor people who are attracted to the same sex, they'll die without it. So we need to accept them for the flawed way that God made them into our circle, into, into Christendom, because of this pragmatic, practical principle. So they're treating sex, again, implicitly. These messages come at us every day, all day. It's treating sex as, as an appetite, a, a, a survival appetite, more akin to eating and drinking than as a desire, which can be a very strong desire, such as the desire for sunlight. Right? Some people get seasonal affective disorder, and they get depressed if they're in the clouds too long. They need to see the sun. That's a desire they have. Will they die without it? They'll say they would. But, but I think that they likely wouldn't. They just would be depressed. Or, this is a big one in my home, 
the desire to have your wall painted one color over another. <laughs> one color is oppressive to you. And I'm not, I'm not poking fun at that. I'm not like that. But some people are. And another couple, another couple, <laughs> another color makes you happy. That's just how some people are. Those are their desires. They won't die if they're forced to live, live in a room with only that, one, only that oppressive color. They'll just be down. But they won't die. Or I'll, I'll poke fun at myself. What about the desire to have all of my tools put away in precisely the right places at the end of a project? They've got to be. And if they're not... I can't sleep. I've got to get up and put them in place. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good job. Having three sons cured me of that. It did. They don't have the same desire I do. And it is just a desire. Strong desire, but just a desire. So what's at the root? I call it, I call it a continental divide the root of this kind of teaching that sex is an appetite that needs to be filled, needs to be satisfied. What's at the root of it? Humanism. That's exactly the word I have in my notes. It is. It's humanism. It's putting, it's putting human logic and quote-unquote needs above the commands that we read in our Bibles instead of putting the commands we read in our Bibles above our human logic. It's, it's the kind, it's the, it's the root of the kinds of thoughts that we can have, we Christians can have, that will not believe what the Bible says clearly for us to believe or do what it says for us to do if it doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense, so I'm not going to do it. God didn't mean that, because I know better. That's humanism. That's placing your logic above the Bibles. Jim. Right, it's it's in our genes. That's right, and I'm not going to get further into that. We talked only very briefly about that as we were discussing procreation and our obedience to that to to that mandate from God. But he's exact, Jim's exactly right. That is, that is another plant that grows from this root of humanism. Yes, Jim. That's right. 
That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, and it's the reason that despite how we like to anthropomorphize our observations of animals, it's the reason that we... What's that? <laughs> the reason that we... Um, the purposes of the sex impulse are different. They, aren't diff they're, they're, they are unique in humans as opposed to animals. Animals aren't doing it for the same reason. They're doing it to procreate. That's it. Human beings have more reasons than that. Yes, Brian. Yep. Self-control. That's right. We're into that. I, I don't think we're going to get as far as I want to today, but I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep trying to push forward. So. This. Uh, this. I'm, I'm trying to remember my place now. <laughs> Because I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I have a this in my notes. And I don't know if it was a this referring to the, the appetite philosophy or the biblical philosophy. But it's naturally also manifest in our choices around satisfaction of our desires. This, this issue of, of uh, seeking to obey the scripture instead of obeying our own logic. So let's consider just a little of what the Bible teaches about control of our God-given desire for satisfaction of the sex impulse, the fences that the scriptures put on it for us, for our good. And we're going to look primarily, because Murray did, at, at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. Pretty familiar to all of us, but I'll read it. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's clear that Jesus is teaching. He's teaching more broadly here than I'm going to discuss. But he's teaching here about satisfaction of the sex impulse is to be pursued exclusively within the covenant of marriage. And Jesus further strengthens and deepens our understanding of the seventh commandment from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, not to commit adultery or, have, or to exercise our sex impulse outside of the marriage covenant. He tells us that when a man looks on a woman to lust for her, he commits adultery with her in his heart. He takes the explicit physical sin of the seventh commandment, which is the way the Jews took it, and expands it to include sinful thinking or cultivation, meditation, rumination upon sinful thoughts. He says, that's, that's just, it's in the same category as committing adultery. So Jesus is condemning all thoughts and activities that involve satisfaction of sex, of the sex impulse outside of the covenant of marriage as sinful. Now I'm going to quote from Murray here. So the quote I don't think sounds exactly like me, but I want to, I want to quote it. The iniquity of sex lust is advertised by concentrating attention 
upon that form which, most cons- which more conspicuously and expressly exposes its wickedness. Now I'll put it in my words. Jesus has taken the most obvious transgression, adultery, and used it to represent and condemn all other forms of sexual sin, and that is pursuit or cultivation of, meditation upon, sexual desire, not simply the act. He's saying the desire, cultivating that desire in the wrong direction is sin. Outside of marriage, that's it. Now, I'm just going to make a couple statements here to qualify this, but I'm not going to spend time on it. Don't take what I'm saying to mean that a spouse, a person who's married, cannot sin against their husband or their wife in the area of intimate relations. It's not true. We will discuss the Bible's ethic regarding sexual relations within the marriage covenant. Maybe, if we ever get to it, we may discuss that. Murray discusses it quite a lot. But there is an ethic. Rest assured, there is an ethic, and it is not that anything goes. Also, remember progressive revelation, that that the Bible is opening this up in time. Jesus shows the sanctity of the marriage bond by strengthening the law of Moses regarding divorce. In Matthew 19.9 says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery, sins sexually. Now, there's a lot in that verse, and I'm not going to open it all up. We may open it up at some later time, but not now. But all I'm, I'm quoting it to say that Jesus further narrowed God, God's view of marriage for his listeners. He said, no, you can't just divorce your wife for any reason. That's what the disciples asked him. You can only do it for, for one who commits adultery. That's it. He's showing how pure and permanent the marriage covenant is to be in this life by stating that only, and I'll I'll add ideally, because we do still live with our hard hearts, don't we? But only marital infidelity is grounds for dissolving the covenant of marriage. Now, on the other hand, note here that Jesus is not, he's not condemning sex. He's condemning sex outside of marriage. That's what he's doing. It cannot be wrong. It cannot be outside the biblical ethic to desire and practice sex within the marriage bond. It can't be. Why? To believe so would be to tell God he was wrong to create it, and he did. He created it, and he gave it to us as a gift. And he called it good. And it'd be, it'd be telling God, no, it's not good. And that would not be right. It is the desire for sex outside of the marriage covenant that Jesus is condemning. It is this desire, this 
uh, outside of this divinely ordained institution, and this is, I'm going to give another partial quote from the book, that is the fountain of desire from which proceed all the evils by which the sanctity of sex is desecrated. And it has been thoroughly desecrated in our, in our day and in days before ours. Thoroughly. So thoroughly that it's, it's in all of us. It's in all of our thinking. We cannot escape it. We have to seek to filter it. To filter out the worldly thinking and to replace it with scriptural, biblical thinking. So that, all of that flies in the face of this worldly philosophy that teaches that sex is a human urge or appetite, something we're pre-programmed to do. We just have to do it because that's who we are. We're like dogs or bison or elephants or whatever. We're just the same. It flies in the face of that. And, and it, it argues that, no, for human beings, sex was created by God and it was created for good purposes. So, what are some areas where this philosophy, this necessary appetite philosophy, has especially manifested itself that we all are exposed to? I have two areas I want to talk about, and I don't know if I get to talk about both of them. I'm going to talk about at least one. The first is the normalization, the acceptableness of masturbation. Okay? Masturbation is satisfying your sex impulse by yourself in case you need a definition. And that it separates the physical satisfaction of the sex impulse from what the physical points to in God's economy, in God's creation. It's much more than a physical activity. Now, adult men and women, we're going to talk very briefly about children, but let's talk about adults. Either married or unmarried, what is the reason that people masturbate? Now, I'm not expecting you to answer that. That's a rhetorical question. I'm going to give a couple reasons. The first is that it feels good. It feels good, so I should be able to do it because it feels, it's just me. It feels good, and it allows me to satisfy my sexual appetite. There's that word. There's that philosophy bleeding into our thinking. I have an appetite. It has to be satisfied. God gave me the appetite. There's nothing wrong with this. Now I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be uh, specific here. You can be, you can all thank me. I'm gonna be general. I'm gonna be brief. But as we discuss the reasons that God has given us the gift of sex later in the lessons, we'll see that none of those reasons support this type of justification. None of them do. It feels good. It's simply a direct challenge to the God-given fruit, the fruit of the Spirit living in our hearts, the fruit of self-control. We can decide whether or not to pursue a desire we have. If we all agree that it's a desire, 
We can decide whether or not we pursue it. It feels good does not trump obedience to God's commands, which are for our good, for our happiness. We must not be driven by our feelings, but by our thoughts or understanding. So just hang with me a minute longer because I want to give the second reason. It's unhealthy for me to not satisfy my appetite for satisfaction of my sex drive. Is it giving into the worldly philosophy rather than grounding our thinking in God's word that says it's not an appetite. It's not something you have to do. It's not something that's in your genes. First of all, when faced with a temptation that might be tasty in the short term, it might be pleasing, it might feel good, we have to recognize that even the even slightly, just even slightly longer term impacts. Because if you tell me the truth, if you would tell me the truth about this, you would tell me that immediately, almost immediately after you satisfy your sexual appetite, how are you going to feel? Are you going to feel good? Feel good about that? Or are you going to feel convicted? It depends on how seared your conscience is. But I would maintain that a conscience with any biblical instruction remaining in it concerning this topic would feel some guilt about this. That doesn't feel good. That's not to mention the longer-term impacts, which I'm not going to discuss now. And second, let's be clear that what Murray defines as a sex impulse, it requires participation of a man, a husband, and a woman, a wife. A husband and a wife. It doesn't, it's not a solo activity. It's never defined that way. It's something like the definition of marriage in that we've defined it as requiring a man and a woman. God defined it that way. You can call it something else, but don't, don't say that I'm just satisfying my sex impulse because God told you how to do that. So, I'll ask a couple questions, very easy ones. Is, is pursuit of the sex impulse, is, is masturbation pursuit of the sex impulse outside of the covenant of marriage? Yes, yes, it is. So is it against God's will to pursue these kinds of feelings in this way? Yes, it is. It's against God's will. Is it up to the Christian to control their natural impulse, their natural desires in the power of the Spirit, using the power that the Spirit gives to conform their will to the good and gracious will of their Father. Yes, that's the Christian's duty. Ours is to control, control ourselves with the power that God gives us. We can control our desires. So we are called to avoid masturbation grounded in this reasoning. It feels good, and I have to fulfill this appetite. I know there's a lot of nuancing and qualification that can be added here, or must be added here, because of our culture and the amount of, the amount of 
trash that they have stuffed into our brains by showering it on us every day. But we're just going to leave it at that bare statement for now. We're called to avoid masturbation that's grounded in this reasoning. And of course we must remember that this sin is not beyond the forgiveness we have in Christ. This is, if you are condemning yourself because you have fallen before this sin, you are falling into the, to the equal sin of self-justification, of works righteousness. Christ died for this sin as much as any other. The question is, have you received him? But we mustn't allow our standing before God based on Christ's finished work to provoke us to willfully and habitually disobey him. We mustn't do that in any area, much less in this area. All right, so more briefly, I'm going to finish with this. We'll get to my next major uh, thing that I want to discuss under this heading next time. But what about children? Okay, now... This is, a, this is a pretty big discussion, too, and I, we are not going to discuss it. We are not going to cover all that. I'm going to make a few statements here that I think are accurate. I remember when I was a child, and I don't remember how old, maybe 8, eight 9, 10, somewhere in there. I was on the playground, and we played. We loved playing tetherball. You know what tetherball is? The ball is attached to a pole. goes around, wraps around, wraps around the other way. The ball got hung up. Someone had to climb the pole and, and get the rope off the top and un, untangled. I did it. I went up. I climbed up the pole and fixed this rope. And I thought, I remember thinking, wow, that felt really strange and kind of pleasant. But I didn't really know what it was. But I knew I'd volunteer to do that again if it happened. I'm going to be first to climb that pole. Children often discover their, what we call, private parts, their genitals, long before they know or understand what they are, all that they are for. They do. And it's up to wise and faithful parents and adults, but focused on parents, to explain to them in age-appropriate ways what they are and the gift God has for many of them later in life. It is not, not for parents to ignore them, to laugh at them, or to shame them upon those discoveries. This is a natural curiosity for children. And we should treat it as that. We should not treat it as something shameful because we've been indoctrinated by our world to see that as shameful. We need, to, we need not to do that and we need to not treat their curiosity as they discover the reality of how God has put them together as his image bearers as something that is dirty somehow. It's curiosity. It's part of their body. They want to know about it. So parents, moms, dads, teach them about it. These discoveries that children make are opportunities for parents to teach 
their children from God's word so that they are resistant to the subtle and relentless messages that they get from this world growing up. Parents are the first and best line of defense against those things. So be that line of defense. I've gone three minutes over. I'm going to have to stop. I will tell you, so you can all be preparing for it, that next week we will start, after a brief introduction where I reorient you to where we are, hopefully not very long at all, we will start with the second issue, which is the normalization of pornography in our culture. And and I say our culture, I mean the Christian culture. Okay? So we're going to talk about that next time. And then we're going to move on to talking about the, the biblical ethic for that, that uh, controls uh, that, uh, what word am I searching for? I don't know. The word that, that teaches us about how to practice the sex impulse within marriage. But we're going to start by talking about pornography because it's an important topic. Okay? So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you that none of what we've talked about this morning, either implicitly or explicitly, has, has surprised you, that, that you have made provision for all of us to walk in righteousness before you, if we will but seek to understand your word and apply it in our lives day by day. Father, we thank you for the provision you have made for us in Christ when we fail. And we pray, Father, that you would cause each one of us to walk in such a way that we would be a light before the world rather than uh, having the world impose its its, its philosophy upon us. Father, we pray for strength we pray for, uh, for right thinking, and we pray that we would do all of these things in dependence on your spirit and, and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.